Thank you so much, Larry. Wow, what a great job. And appreciate that wonderful message. Well, we want to welcome in those that are across the street with us. I uh, want to welcome them at this time uh, for our, our time of Bible study. And also those that are at home watching from a digital fashion. And it's good to have all of our church family together. And we look forward, I hope, one day soon to all being back physically. And uh, just so thankful that you're here with us today. And I just remind you, about six or seven weeks ago, I was speaking into uh, the center audience of eight people. And they were all sounding camera techs. So things are getting better, all right, week by week. And it's good to see some of you back this week that haven't been able to come or haven't felt safe to come. But uh, for all those especially that are home today, uh, we certainly have a place for them. We're saving their spot, aren't we? And to look forward to everyone returning. Job chapter number 42. Job chapter number 42. Uh, I, I would say that we come to the end of our study today, but the Lord has not settled that in my heart. We come to the final chapter, I'll say that. Uh, and as we do so, uh, we've been spending the last several months in the book of Job, just saturating in God's word. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that the book of Job begins with just a simple phrase with the words, in the land of us, there lived a man by the name of Job. And the last verse of the book of Job simply says, and in, in, uh, in, in Job died, an old man full of years. And, uh, you know, that statement reminded me of Genesis 5. I don't know where you're familiar with Genesis 5, but it gives us this long list in Genesis 5 of one individual after another that lived and they died. And it highlights that for us over and over. But you know, you and I know the storyline of between the land of living and the land of dying. That's where the real story unfolds. And so we've been spending some time in the real story of Job's life. From the time that God allowed him with great blessing to amass so many things. And his life was so rich and full, not because of the things, but because of his wife and his children and the friends and the associates. His life was just full. But not so much just because of the what and the who, but because of his relationship with God. The Bible says that he walked upright with God. He was a blameless man, and those were God's words. God did not state that he was a sinless man, but a blameless man, a very good, righteous man. And we've been looking at these devastating blows that Satan has hurled at Job, stripping him of all of his things, stripping him of those that he loves so much and so dearly, and trying to put in peril the very relationship, the cord that he had with his holy God. And we've walked through dialogues between so-called friends. And we've learned a number of important lessons along the way, but I believe that God is really, for in this book of Job, saved the very best for last. And this morning, we're going to look at those incredible verses, Job chapter number 42. I hope you brought your Bible with you. I mean, you wouldn't go to your doctor without your patient history. <laughs> you wouldn't go to the store without some way to pay for it. Well, but yet, as my wife found out yesterday, she called me and she said, I'm standing here. She was at a store here in Longview and she said, is my wallet on the kitchen table? 
And I said, will they take an IOU? And she said, no. I said, well, try to use my ministerial card. And she said, that won't work either. But you know, we wouldn't come to the place of worship without God's word. And I hope you brought a copy of God's word. I tell you to slide over and look on with your neighbor, but that would be in violation of the six foot foot rule. So hopefully I'll just read well today if you did not or you do not have a copy of God's word. But I think there's one provided for you in that pew in front of you if you'd like to grab it. Job chapter number 42. Let's read the first six verses because today I want us to spend just a few moments together as we look at this very best, I believe, episode in all of Job. What what an incredible moment. God's going to bring us today to three stages or three outcomes of Job's life. And I want us to look intensely at those stages today. But here's what God's Word says, beginning in Job, verse number 1 in chapter 42. Let's just read down through verse number 6, and that will get us started today. Then Job replied to the Lord, Now, if we just stop there for just a moment, we remember that the Lord has been speaking to Job. He was silent for a great period of time. When he got so frustrated and fed up with his friends, when we come to that moment when a special character comes on the scene by the name of Elihu, we we hear no more for a significant period of time from Job. Now, finally, God speaks to him. Out of the silence, God has spoken. And man, did God speak a resounding word in his life. Seventy-seven questions God has fired away at Job. And Job has no answers. Job is reminded now of God's incredible sovereignty. But we have this moment that Job now is going to respond back to God after that enormous set of questions. I don't believe that's the focus. It's not so much the 77 questions as it is the life lesson that God is bringing Job to greatly understand. And so the Bible says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You have asked. And notice, Job is going to do something here. He's going to essentially quote God's words back to God. Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful to me to know. Verse 4, you said, listen now, and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then the Bible says in Job 42, verse 5, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Would you take something right with me this morning? I think it'll be helpful for you because as you know, after about seven minutes, psychologists, people that study all the neurons and things going on in our crazy brains say that we begin to diminish in terms of what we can remember. So I'm going to encourage you, take out something to write with, and let's jot down these three phases, because in seven minutes, you'll forget them. Amen? Now, that would suggest that in seven minutes, I'll be through with this message, and that would be wishful thinking, all right? But let's talk about the first of these three phases, these first three, uh, first of three stages. I would just suggest to you, first of all, you and I have just witnessed a part of Job's transformation. Write that down, Job's transformation. 
Now, there's going to be two things a part of this transformation that we see unfolding. First of all, I want you to examine with me from these verses how Job and what he is going to declare. Notice specifically what Job declares. Verse 1, 2, and 3, we see the unfolding of a very important element in Job's life. Job is going to declare, first of all, God's power. He says, with the very questions that God is just asking. We, we remember some of those, don't we? Job, when I was laying out the expanse of this universe, who was it that measured it? Job, do you have a tape measure big enough to tape out the universe? Who put dimensions on all these things? Who decided how big planet Earth is going to be? How the expanse of the oceans? How tall the mountains will be? Or how deep the caves? Who decided how deep the very depths of the oceans would be? Job, was it you that decided those things? And it was a list of those kind of questions that began to refocus Job as prior, he was prancing around before God, saying only if God would speak. I've got a few questions. There's a few things I want to discuss with God. And we know as a reader of God's word, we began to see that it was out of this that sin began to form in Job's life. And in a sense of what? His pride. And God just brings him back to ground zero. And Job begins to recognize now God's incredible power. He begins to recognize his wisdom, doesn't he? The all-knowing, all-powerful God. But Job begins to come to a very important understanding. Job began to understand that it really doesn't matter what God does, for whatever God chooses to do is always the right thing. You know, in life, we would kind of wrap that up in simple terms as just saying, Job was able to come to understand God's total sovereignty. That our God is sovereign. He is God and we are not. And so we see this declaration, how Job declares this. But I want you to see something else very significant. This transformation was not just a recognition of what Job declares, but I want you to notice what Job does. Write that down, what Job does. Look in verse 5. This is so very important. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now, I think you and I understand something throughout the Bible, in, in, in Bible totality, the whole picture, Old and New Testament together, we began to see scripturally something very important unfold over book after book, character after character, moment after moment that God interacts with humanity. We began to understand as we read the Bible that there's a clear distinction in having a head knowledge of God and a heart knowledge of God. Can I hear an amen to that? Big difference in hearing about God or knowing him on an intellectual plane and knowing God in a heartfelt, intimate way. Big difference. Big difference in what that does in terms of our motivation of our Christian life. Somebody with us other, the other day was talking to me about, man, I just, I'm so thankful that Oakland Heights is a praying church, but pastor, we need to, to be a, a more praying church. 
a mostest praying church, a, a church that prays in great depth together. And that launched a discussion with us about the very core of what prayer is. Prayer is a self-discipline. It is one of the spiritual disciplines that the Word of God gives us. And it's so very important because that is what? Our communication line to our Heavenly Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But you know, when you get to the very depths of prayer life, very seldom do people ever come to that distinction in their life having just a head knowledge. Now here in this text, it's interesting how Job kind of lays these two out. He, he lays this concept out with the ear and with the eloho, the eye. He says, early on in my walk with you, God, I heard. I had ear knowledge of you. I heard about the great Jehovah and what he did over here. I heard this group speaking of the great Jehovah one. And then even after I received you into my life and worshiped you as my God, I heard of your great works. But now after this time with you, he says, now I see. What is Job alluding to? He's speaking of his growing relationship with God. Not an intellectual understanding of God, but a, an experience with God, a personal knowledge of God. Some of you are reading from a King James Version today, or as some of you refer to it, the Holy Scroll. You know, you don't have the word despise here in verse 6. You have the word abhor, to abhor, to despise. You know, that's an interesting concept, that word despise, as we read it from the NIV. You know what that word means in the Hebrew language? It means to melt away. To melt away. You see what Job's saying? He's saying, God, in all of these things that have unfolded, when I now come in my relationship and covenant with you, things have now melted away. Do you kind of see now and sense that Job is craving intimacy with God? We know that the door of repentance opens into the hall of joy. And because of that, we understand... In just a moment, as we continue to read in this 42nd chapter, beginning with verse 7, you're going to see four times that God, God himself, is now going to refer to Job as my servant. Now, that's not just any title. In our Old Testament, we know the Old Testament, when God refers to someone as his servant, that's a very special distinction. It's a very special title. And again, we see this unfolding before us. Can I just stop? Of course I can, I'm the pastor. And ask something that's just been on my heart. Do you think that one reason that God does not move in our churches today like so many of us would like for him to move you know what I mean when I say move. I mean true revival, true connection with Him. Do you think part of the reason that God often does not move in our churches like we would like Him to is that maybe we're a little bit more impressed with ourselves 
than we are with the living God himself. Do you think there was a little disconnect when Job was prancing around like a prince, the Bible said, saying, you just wait till God shows up. And what we see in Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, boy, verse 6 gives us a whole different picture of Job, doesn't it? Job despised himself. The Bible says, isn't that interesting? He repented in dust and ashes. In what? In, in the very element of death itself. You know, I just wonder if we don't need a real new, fresh encounter and experience with our living God. But can I just share this with you? It's very easy to know and to sense when someone's had a real experience with our God. They won't be prancing around like a prince. The Bible gives us one individual after another that had the privilege of coming into the true presence of God. People like Daniel. You remember over there in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 10, we began to see the unfolding of God making his presence felt in Daniel's life. And you have these characteristics that began to surface. He was weakened. He lost his strength. And what? He trembled in fear and then fell down face first. You get over there to your New Testament, you have John exiled on this very Isle of Patmos. He's able to what? To script out for us what we know as the book of Revelation. And in the very presence of God, you remember the Bible says he fell at God's feet. By the way, that Greek word pipto is the word that suggests when he fell, he fell from an upright position straight down to the ground trembling in fear. Man, this was a key moment. This is a key moment in Job's life. He and God speaking to one another, and we see the essence of a true transformation. Incredible. I want to show you a second stage. We got to move along. I want to show you a second stage. As Job begins now to be transformed from this center stage to this saint stage, we see a second stage unfolding in, beginning in verse number 7. Jot this down. We're going to see Job's liberation. Not just his transformation, but his liberation. Look at it with me in the text, beginning in verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, Have you learned by now that Eliphaz was the leader of the three? He was the ringleader of the three musketeers of misery. Eliphaz, the, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. Now remember who's speaking here. God now is leveling charges at these three friends. You know why God's leveling these charges to them. Because they have what? They have assaulted with empty accusations. They've not spoken with true theos and true in God integrity. And so God's going to have a word for them. So he begins with Eliphaz. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Look in verse 8. So now take seven bulls and take seven rams. We know one of these days we'll go through numerology. We'll do so in the early stages of Revelation. But that numerology holds up. In the entire Bible, we know seven's an important number, that number of perfection. Take the seven bulls, the perfect number of bulls, the perfect number of rams, and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering 
There's the sacrificial element for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. Boy, that's an interesting twist on things, isn't it? And I will accept his prayer. Man, that's important. And not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Look in verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now I want you to see a part of this liberation. Notice, first of all, that Job's going to be liberated from those that had accused him. Those that had accused him. Would you just out there in the margin somewhere as an extra note, just write the words, wronged him? These three friends have wronged him. They have accused him of things that are not true. But I think the lesson here for us is much broader. Not always does someone just accuse us. There's many times that people actually wrong us. And certainly this is a case of that. I wrote down Matthew chapter number 18. Because there's one of the most vivid examples of forgiveness in all the Bible. Jesus speaks it out of a parable. A man comes to a king and he has a debt that he cannot pay. It's an enormous debt. And Jesus said the king reached down in the depths of his heart and forgave that which was owed to him. And this man left and he went out and there was one that owed him something far less. And this man would not forgive him. In fact, he had him indentured and tortured and would not forgive that. And so the king calls that man back. And he speaks into his life and he says, of all things, I demonstrated great grace with you. But you would not demonstrate grace to those in your life. So because of that, now you will have to pay and you will be kept in incarceration, if you will, until everything that you owed is paid back. Jesus himself taught that incredible lesson about forgiveness. And you and I stand at a crossroads. You and I historically are able to watch the life of Job. What's Job going to do? Is Job going to take the high road? Is Job going to be able to speak out of a heart of forgiveness to these men? And more than just speak it, is he going to be able to act upon it and truly forgive these friends that have wronged him and accused him? It's a question of liberation. Will he be liberated? And we do understand, don't we? That those of us that have experienced God's grace should be willing to what? To extend that grace. I just wonder if there's someone here, here or at the center or home today watching in some digital form that's struggling with forgiveness. The former husband, the former wife. I wonder if there's a, a, a church leader that's here that something's happened to them years past but you've still been unable to turn loose of that and forgive that individual for how they have harmed you and hurt you, how they've wronged you, how maybe they spoke accusations that were not true. And so God does something that only God could do. Job, 
you're about to get three visitors. And Job, I know that you finally got so fed up with these three guys that in your own words, you said, I speak no more. I know things are a little tense there in the end, Job, and I know you haven't spoken to them since, nor seen them, Job, but here's what's going to happen. Job, as your sores began to heal, you're going to have very soon three visitors. And Job, as they come to you, I want you to accept their gift, sacrifice that gift just as I have given instruction. But Job, most of all, I'm going to ask that you pray over them. And Job, maybe the biggest ask of all, I'm going to ask that you look into your heart just as I have forgiven you, Job, and that you forgive them. Job, I know they've come to you, each of them, in three separate dialogues. Job, I know there's been three painful Three times three, nine total painful dialogues. I know things didn't end well. But Job, just as I have demonstrated grace to you, I would ask that you demonstrate grace to them. Do you see that liberation in Job? The Bible says, as Job prayed that prayer, look at the end of verse 9, the Lord accepted Job's prayer, incredible moment. He was liberated from those that accused him, but there's so much more here. He was also liberated from those that had abandoned him. And another tough lesson for us all, look in verse 11. We'll come back and look more at verse 10 here shortly. The Bible says all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. Look at the middle of verse number 11. They comforted, they consoled, they consoled him over all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver. And they gave him, the Bible says, a gold ring. (laughs) Can't we agree on one thing today? People are fickle. You know, we go through 41 chapters here, about 39 of those where Job is in a terrible plight. Physically, his body's breaking down emotionally he's a basket case spiritually he's struggling maritally things have come unhinged with his very wife saying Job denounce this God are you going to worship this God curse this God parentally his children have been ripped from him And yet the Bible outside of these three so-called friends gives us no indication that anyone would come and spend time with Job. Maybe it was the smell. Maybe it was just the grotesque look of this flesh being eaten away and it oozing of infection. 
Maybe it was human nature. You and I can go from a hero to a zero in just a short period of time. And you just wonder, where were Job's real friends? You and I have talked about this before. Real friends are those that stay and step into your life when all others step out. Where are these individuals? But yet, as God begins to restore Job, the Bible says, and all of the friends began to come back. Job, it's just terrible what you've been experiencing. Job, we've just been so frustrated with this turn of events in your life. And you and I, as the reader, should be saying, yeah, where were you when it counted? And so I just share with you that total forgiveness is not just about those that have wronged us and accused us, but it's for those that have abandoned us. And now Job has really got to be able to dig deep. God had better be doing an incredible work in his life for him now to exercise this kind of freedom of forgiveness to those that would return with such a, a small gift, just a piece of silver in a ring, just a new housewarming gift for Job, just a little something we picked up at the local market, just a little something to let you know, Job, that we've been thinking about you. But yes, where have you been? I'm wounded and I've been hurt. Where have you been? And it just reminds me, and it should remind you that you and I have got to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Even the best of the best of people will disappoint us. Christians are going to disappoint us from time to time. And it's in those moments that you and I have got to be able to dig deep and say, God, just as you have exhibited grace in my life, so I will exhibit grace in the lives of these. I've come to understand something very important. After looking at myself for 56, 57 years, all the failures, all the faults, all the inconsistencies, if God could grant grace in my life, then I must, I must be compelled to grant that grace in the lives of others. And can I just give you a good Baptist thought today? If you and I, you and I, spent more time mending ourselves and watching over the challenges that we have personally, we would be far less inclined to point out the faults of another. Now, I realize that's not a point many will amen. But when we go back and watch the telecast, someone should be able to say, Pastor, well said. Job, his transformation.
Job, his liberation. But I want you to see this final stage. It's a special one. And Job, his restoration. I want you to look at Job's restoration. I told you we'd be back to verse number 10. Pick it up with me in verse number 10. And after Job had prayed with his for his friends, the Lord restored him. Did you notice that? How significant is that little nugget? Woohoo! Let me read it again. After Job had prayed for his friends. Let me read it again. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Wow. How important is forgiveness? You and I, at this point, there is no question about what this says. God gives us the obvious. Once you have established forgiveness for someone, then you'll be ready to receive my blessings. That begs a question for us. How many believers walk around in our New Testament churches without eligibility, without the ability to receive God's greatest blessings in their life, things that he wants to do in their lives because of the rebellion or the lack of forgiveness? After Job had forgiven, after Job had restored his relationship with these, the Bible says everything was returned to him, restored to him, his fortunes twice as much. You know, Job is not mentioned much anywhere else in Scripture. It's almost like we just have an exception or two in our Bible. We just don't hear anything else from him. One of those exceptions is over in James chapter 5 and verse 11. James makes record of, for those that are going through difficult times, he says, hey, hey, let's reach back into history. James says in James 5, 11, do you remember that man that, and here's the word that James uses, the word persevered. Do you remember that man that persevered? You remember that man hundreds and hundreds of years ago that lived and thrived during all kinds of devastation. His name was Job. And then it's so interesting, James in James 5.11 brings us to this statement. He says, and the Lord finally, finally, that's a key word, finally brought about what? His full compassion and his, and his mercy in Job's life. What an incredible moment. In the roll call of those that had done great things, James says, do you remember Job? What an incredible man when it comes to restoration. He went through so much before he was restored. I want you to notice this. Let's just mark it off together. God restored his fortune, didn't he? Go down to verse number 12. God restores his fortune. The Lord blessed, now keep in the back of your mind, two times everything, God's going to double everything that he has. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep. Now, if you put a finger right there and go back to Job chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I'll let you do the math. If you take the number that he started with in Job 1, verses 2 and 3, and you multiply times 2, that's what God's Word said, 2 times everything, then this chapter 42, 
verses 12 and 13 and following right here, these should list double the amount of everything. And here's what the Word of God says in verse 12. He had 14,000 sheep. Did you take a peek back? Did he have 7,000 before? He had 6,000 camels. Did you take a peek back? Chapter 1, did he have 3,000 camels to start with? And he had 1,000 yoke. That's a key word, yoke of oxen. We know yokes work in pairs. Did he have 500 yoke when he started? And he had 1,000 donkeys. Now, what a man would need with 1,000 donkeys, I'm not going to get into that. 1,000 donkeys. There's so much I could say about that, but God has laid on my heart to refrain from saying anything more about that. But as we look back to chapter 1, did he have 500 donkeys to begin with? The Lord restored two times all of his fortune. But as we read down in verse 13, jot this down, God also restored his family. God restored his family. Look in verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Now that's a little bit of a problem for us, isn't it? How do you have 3.5 sons in chapter 1? How do you have 1.5 daughters in chapter 1? Because we know God's word is not in error. We know his word is complete and perfect for us. But we also know, don't we, that that which has gone to heaven is not lost. Job. He was given 10 more children. He now has 20 children. 10 on earth and 10 in heaven. I've shared with you before, uh, Warren Wiersbe has been my go-to guy. I, I just love his writing. Swindoll may be my favorite writer to read, but Wiersbe is a guy that I've always looked up to. I've only, I was able to see in his lifetime, I was able to see him speak three times personally. Wasn't the most eloquent, gifted communicator. Kind of had a nasally voice, thick glasses. But man, what a godly man and what a great scholar. Warren Wiersbe at Moody Bible Institute just about four months after Vance Havner's wife, Sarah, had died. Warren Wiersbe, well-known story, approached the great preacher, Vance Havner, and he said, Vance, I, I just want to tell you, I'm so sorry that you've lost your wife. And Vance Havner, in his country tongue, four months after his precious wife, Sarah, had died, looked into Warren Wiersbe's eyes, and this wasn't just anybody, Warren Wiersbe. And he said, Warren, thank you for your kind words, but I haven't lost Sarah. You don't lose things that you know where they are. What a great way to communicate. 
You know, you and I, when we think about those that are in heaven, I, I know that I speak to some of you. Just a moment, I'm going to pull up to a dining table and I'm going to have lunch with my mother and father. And many of you know that we had a tragedy early on in my life, losing my little brother in, a, in an accident in our driveway. A, a, one of our cars ran over his little head and crushed it. But you know, in our family, we know that Mark, he's not lost. And one of these days, if I live long enough, they're going to call me and they're going to they're say, Mike, your mother ha has died. Pastor Mike, your, your father has died. And I know at that moment, that's going to be a very sad moment for me, but I know this much. They're going to be leaving one son and headed to another. And I know that I speak to some of you today that have lost a son or a daughter, a grandchild. And can I just ask a question of you? Didn't you worry a whole lot more about them living here on earth as you have about their living in heaven? And so Job... We see that God restored his fortune. God restored his family. Look with me. God also restored his future. Back up to verse number 12, and let's just read the first part of verse 12 again. It's significant. But the Lord blessed, now not, notice this in the text, the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Go down to verse number 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to a fourth generation. We'll come back in just a moment and speak of that. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Jewish history, whether we're willing to accept that or not, dates Job being 70 years of age when he was afflicted. Now that would be a great uh, Monday afternoon discussion in the pastor study sitting around the table if you're ever interested. How, how do these Jewish historians date this? Whole nother, whole nother discussion. But let's just assume for the sake of assumption at this point that that is correct. 70 years was his age when he was afflicted the Bible says he lives another 140 years, and if we add that correctly, what, about 210 years of age. By the way, that full of years is an interesting statement. Some of you have this translation, full of life. Full of life. The language there suggests that Job lived, he breathed, that nephish, he worked, he interacted, and he fell over full of life. God gave him great days. And what a turnaround. 
from a man taking pottery and scraping himself, from a man that just knew in his heart of hearts, hey, this is it for me. I'm about to expire. I just have a short time to live. And when he forgave, God spoke into his life a whole different dimension of fortune twofold, of children twofold, and certainly in his future, more than twofold. And he died full of life. I believe that maybe one of the most moving moments, and that's what the study of Job is all about, being able to transfer what we've taken and the encouragement from God's word and to slip that into application in our lives. I believe that one of the great moments in history of those that have suffered the most immensely in our generation occurred in 1994, a young family, Scott and Janice Willis. Scott, Baptist preacher, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, had gone over into Wisconsin to do some work there. Scott and Janice had, are you ready for this? Nine children. In 1994, they were coming back in just a simple white church van. They had six of their nine children behind them. And as they were coming back from Wisconsin, got about 58 miles from the city of Chicago, their home, and their van ran over a piece of debris on the interstate. It happened to be a mud flap and a taillight assembly kit that had dropped off. Scott tried to swerve to miss it, but as he did, part of his tire hit it, and it kicked that assembly and that debris up underneath that van and immediately punctured that van's gasoline tank. The van, as it was going down the road, erupted in a fireball of flames. Five of their six children in the back, the five youngest, were killed immediately before the van could even come to a stop. Their oldest boy that was traveling with them, Ben, who was age 12 at the time, died the next day as he was burned over 90% of his body. When EMT, an ambulance, all those first responders got to that blazing inferno, Scott and Janice had survived. And as they wheeled Janice off in an ambulance, those first responders heard her say over and over and over just all that she could remember at that moment. I will bless the Lord all the time. And out of my mouth will always come praise for Him. And you know today as we stand and worship our Lord, we don't do so without the agony and misery and pain that this whole world can bring. But we do so having been affirmed the last two months of knowing that we have a sovereign God that has the right to do what He wishes. 
that has the reward for those that will trust Him and follow Him. And the Holy God that always will bring the best for us. He will never bring evil. He will only bring challenges and trials and difficulties that come from our Father that will make us stronger. A moment ago, I think one of the greatest worship pastors in the convention is Josh Thomas. He led us in a song that said, And when Satan shall buffet, you and I have the opportunity and privilege to stand firm against any attack. Our God is sovereign. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we just thank you for these few moments that we've had, the power of your word. I pray that you forgive the messenger and all the flaws, all the failures, but that your word would be magnified today. Dear Lord, thank you for walking us through those challenging, difficult days. Even in your silence, we will trust you. Even in the agony of pain, we will trust you. Even through the most difficult and dire days, we will trust you. Father, would you just lift our church family? Would you lift our nation out of the cesspool of difficulty and trouble that we find ourselves in? We're afflicted physically. We, like Job, are afflicted spiritually. And Father, there are many that feel like we are about to expire as a nation. But just as you did in Job's life, if we are willing to repent, we pray that you might turn our nation in a whole new direction. And Father, we want you to know that whatever days we walk through, we will trust you. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.